Already such an encouraging morning. And now we get to uh, open up God's word and hear what God has said and linger over it together. So I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 17. If you are using the Bible in the rack in front of you that looks like this, you can find that on page 580. We're going to be reading Isaiah 17 and 18, the oracle concerning Damascus. I'll give you a moment to find it. And then for those who are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 17 and 18. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They'll be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares Yahweh of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, his arm harvests the ear, as one gleans ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares Yahweh, God of Israel. In that day, man will look to his maker, and, I, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, and he'll not look on what his own fingers have made, either the asherim or the altars of incense. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. And have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. 
all you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet's blown, hear. For thus Yahweh said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of the harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to Yahweh of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of Yahweh of hosts. You can be seated as we pray. Father, open up our ears to listen. Open up our eyes to see. Cause your spirit to work mightily through your word as we linger over it this morning that we may be changed in the ways you intend. We together offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. What is your impossible situation? Perhaps you have a child who's a handful and you're at the end of your rope. What do you do? Try harder. Read every book on parenting on the planet. Ratchet up the manipulation or threats just a little more with the hopes that this time my child will listen. What's your impossible situation? Maybe it's memories that haunt you. Deep soul level pain that you can't shake and it cripples you. What do you do? Maybe self-medicate to numb the pain. Maybe throw yourself into your work, hoping career achievement will crowd out the pain. Or maybe vow to give yourself and all you have to making sure that those entrusted to you never experience the same trauma you experience. Your strong resolve to change the tide mitigates the pain you feel. What's your impossible situation? Maybe it's some sort of relational strain. Someone near to your heart. That's breaking your heart. What do you do? Try once again to find that perfect balance between tough love and forgiveness. Vilify the person in your own mind or in how you talk to others so as to justify the hatred you feel towards them. Maybe seek to destroy them or let's go to counseling. Maybe we can work this thing out. 
Well, Israel faced her own impossible situation. King Uzziah had died, ending some 50 years of stability and prosperity. And around the same time, Assyrians in the north were rising with a menacing, merciless army bent on marching right through Israel on their way to take down Egypt. What will they do? And into this impossible situation, Yahweh himself speaks. And he answers by taking them to Damascus. What some of us need, and yes, I include myself in this, is for the prophet Isaiah to go all Damascus on us. Because you see, this oracle concerning Damascus, unlike the other oracles in this section, all these oracles against the different nations, unlike them, this oracle isn't really about Damascus. It's about us and our tendency to cling to anything but God when our situation is impossible. That's why only three of the 21 verses in this oracle are actually about Damascus. That's why it's such a preachy oracle, especially verses, chapter 17, verses 7 to 10, but, but throughout the whole thing. So let's this morning unleash Damascus on us. Maybe, perhaps, God can use it to pry our fingers off of our, some of our cherished idols. Maybe, I pray, that instead, God will allow us to behold the Holy One of Israel. So, just, just remember, after the death of Solomon one of the kings of Israel, the northern tribes of Israel separated from the southern tribes and they created their own altars, not based on what God had said, their own places of worship, not based on what God had said, their own king, not the Davidic king. And they claimed they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they were doing it on their own terms and in their own way instead of listening closely to God. So when the rising Assyrian menace, or sorry, when the rising and menacing Assyrians threatened them in their impossible situation, what do they do? Well, they run to Damascus. That is to say, they run to the Syrians whose capital was Damascus. Now, this is some shrewd political maneuvering. They decide to unite forces with their neighbors to oppose the Assyrians. They're thinking, maybe if we can just band together, we'll be strong enough. But they think they need at least one more ally. So surely this northern tribe, the northern kingdom, which is called Ephraim in this passage, surely Ephraim is going to be able to convince the southern kingdom, Judah, 
to join them. And once these three nations are aligned and working together, they might have a chance. They hold on long enough, perhaps maybe Egypt will send some of their heavy weaponry their way. There's a chance. And it's like, okay, if there's a chance, I'll take it. Now removed from the God of Scripture, removed from the prophetic writings, this may seem like a fine and shrewd political move. Amongst a whole lot of bad options, this might seem like one of the better, more plausible ones. Maybe we even admire the courage of these brave warriors willing to risk so much to fight for their land and their lives in the face of the mighty Assyrians. But the problem is we can't remove this situation from the God of Scripture. We can't remove it from the prophetic writings. Back in Deuteronomy 28, God had explicitly told Israel that as time went on, their hearts would harden and they would turn away from God. And in light of that, God would do all sorts of things to try and get their attention and turn them back to him. He'd send calamity after calamity, but their hearts would remain hard and remain hard until eventually he would have to send an enemy nation to come and conquer them and carry them into exile. And sure enough, Israel does just what God said. And so prophets like the prophet Amos, you can read his oracles against these northern tribes. He goes to Israel and warns her, you're on the brink of being conquered. Turn back, repent before it's too late. But... Those northern tribes reject Amos' message. Go back home to your sheep, they say. And God says, all right, you've crossed the line. Destruction is coming. Now, all that to say then, Ephraim actually had an alternative option. They could have repented fully, turned to the true God, restore the Davidic king, Restore worship to the temple in Jerusalem. Repent of their godless ways and then entrust themselves to the God who is strong and sovereign over all the nations. Perhaps if they did so, as Amos initially offered, they would, God would repent, relent. Or perhaps it was at the point where they would still be conquered and know the consequence of their sins, but afterwards they would feel the experience of Yahweh's healing hands. But either way, they would be obeying the voice of God and trusting Him. But that's not what Ephraim does, is it? Instead, she, she clings to Damascus her shrewd and calculating plans. She'll trust her own strong cities. She'll trust her ally to the east. Perhaps maybe she'll get some help from Egypt. She'll trust her diplomatic skills that'll eventually convince Judah to join in. She will finagle her way through this by hook or by crook. You know what happens? 
You heard me read what the prophet said in verses 1 to 3 about Damascus. The whole thing turns out to be a complete flop. The plan fails, and it fails miserably. Judah refuses the alliance. So Ephraim and Syria decide they have to fight against Judah to convince Judah to join her. But Judah runs off and gets help from Assyria, which we've learned is also a bad idea. But it's game over in Damascus and Ephraim. Assyria tromps through Damascus and Assyria tromps through Ephraim. I love how Isaiah puts it. The glory of Damascus will be just like the glory of Jacob. Jacob's another name for Israel. Here it's referencing those northern tribes, Ephraim. What is this glory of Jacob? Verse 4, Ephraim's fat is leanness. Her resistance to the enemy will be, it'll be as easy for Assyria as just plucking grain down in the valley, verse 5. It's going to be so bad, verse 6, that Ephraim will be like a picked over fruit tree. There's just nothing left of her. And it's exactly what happened. Ephraim was carried off into exile, never to return again, never to be restored again. More or less, this is the complete end of the story of Ephraim. And the prophet's looking at us and saying, that's where turning to Damascus gets us. Friends, in our impossible situations, where does our gaze turn? Does it turn to our maker? Or does it turn to the idols we have made? Do we look to our own solutions? Or do we look to the Holy One of Israel? Are we looking to the cities of our strongholds or the rock that is our stronghold? So that's the question verses 7 to 11 are putting to us. In fact, if, if you, the, the Hebrew behind um, in verse 9, you'll see this strong cities. The Hebrew could be read, literally translated, cities of our stronghold. And then in verse 10, where it says the rock of your refuge, the Hebrew is literally the rock of our stronghold. It's deliberately juxtaposing these two, the city of our stronghold, the rock of our stronghold, the things we've made versus our maker. Where are we turning? The prophet is telling us, when we run to Damascus, Damascus fails us. All our handmade solutions will crumble and fall. They cannot hold up. Perhaps soon, perhaps far down the road, they will fail just like we fail. 
not surprisingly, our man-made idols are only as strong or as weak as we are. The oracle against Damascus, our ally, our hope, is that her fate is our fate. Our strong cities will fail, so will theirs. Our idols will fail, so will hers. And then, in that day, we will see, we'll see the God we should have trusted all along. Our maker, the Holy One of Israel, the rock, our stronghold. And then Isaiah gives us a picture of how this rock functions. Remember the rock had told old Ahaz in chapter 7 that he'd protect Jerusalem from Assyria And Ahaz, who was a king in Judah, didn't trust Yahweh. We'll learn later the next king after Ahaz, Hezekiah actually does trust Yahweh. And so verses 12 to 14 paint a very different picture when the rock is in charge. A very different picture from the Damascus allegiance. So in verses 12 and 13, we see this vast, powerful army forming this multitude, thunders and roars like the mighty sea crashing up against Judah. The waves smash against the shoreline. The tsunami rips away buildings, sweeps away trucks and ocean liners like they're toys. It's such a scene. And that's exactly how the Assyrians moved first through Damascus and, Ju- or, and Ephraim, and then into Judah until, until Yahweh steps in. And suddenly, in the middle of verse 13, the thundering waters are turned into chaff, just blowing in the mountain breeze, dust kicking up as the storm blows in. And that's exactly what happened. Assyria does come through Judah, gets right up to Jerusalem's door when Hezekiah is king, about to knock over Jerusalem, and then God just sends them away. Whoosh, they're gone. And verse 14 ends, do you see it there? This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. When, when the rock's in charge. Think about it. Either there is a God or there isn't a God. Either there is a creator who made all of this or there isn't. Either there is a God, as the scriptures say, who loved us enough that while we were rebels and sinners, sent his son into this world to redeem us by offering his life as a ransom so that we could be restored to him, or there isn't. And if there is such a God, We're foolish to look anywhere else for help. 
he created this whole world, all of it, simply by speaking it into existence. He created human life by pulling some dust together and breathing life into it. He's not just a little bit stronger than us. He's not just a little bit stronger than, say, Damascus or our stubborn child and his future or the terrible memories that haunt you. He is far, far stronger. It's a tiny flea versus a mighty lion. It's a drop of water versus the entire ocean. So why is it, and I'm asking myself as well, why is that we're so quick to forget about him? Why are we scrambling for man-made solutions? Our passage for us is exposing the failure of trusting Damascus and comparing that to the ultimate wisdom of trusting Yahweh. So is it just saying, okay, trust God. Let your children behave however they want. No need to parent. God's in charge. Just pray a lot. It's all you do. No. God actually gave instructions to Israel of what they should do. He did that through the prophet Moses. He did that through the prophet Amos. He did that to uh, Ahaz back in chapter 7 and 8. And his word still speaks to us today. So part of what it means to trust Yahweh is to look to his word and obey it. And the rest of Isaiah is going to make that theme really clear. So here's what I think we should do real simply. The alternative to trusting Damascus in three steps. Three steps. First step, look to the Bible and see what God says pertaining to your impossible situation. It's not going to give you every answer, but it's going to tell you the core things that you need to focus on and prioritize. And don't just look for the actions you should take, but also look for what your heart should be in, in the midst of them. So that's step one, look to the Bible. Step two, pray fervently to God. How many times that memory comes up, you see the person, it's, oh, I'm jarred. And our first response isn't to pray. I gotta do my man-made solutions. Where's my idol? Where's my asherim? Right, that's us. I'll pray fervently to God. Continually. And third, wait and hope. This isn't a, I hope I got my fingers crossed, not that kind of hope. God is mighty. He will act. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I trust him. So I'm obeying what he said to do taking the burden off of myself and putting on a hand by praying about it whenever it's on my heart or mind. And then I'm just able to wait. 
and hope, knowing who our God is. Now, that could seem simplistic. Maybe it seems a bit reductionistic, but, but I think that's all. Now, some of us might feel like, well, well I do look to God. I, I pray about my impossible situation. Well, sure, we look to Yahweh, but we hedge our bets, don't we? God plus my strong city. God plus Damascus. God plus my Asherah pole. God plus the latest parenting guru. God plus the self-help section of the bookstore. But when our hope and confidence is God plus, we've missed it altogether. I've got the ocean, but I need that little drop of water too. I have this mighty lion, but let's get that flea on our side too. No. If we're depending on the droplet, we've clearly forgotten the ocean. Now, don't hear me wrong. I am not saying there's no room for coordinating food rations in Jerusalem or something like that. It's not that we can't do anything except for what the Bible has explicitly commanded. There are going to be efforts we take and ideas we try along the way. That's just part of learning and maturing as whatever it is, a human being, a parent. It's not wrong to get a book that provides some extra biblical advice on the topic. But we have to keep them periphery and on the edges. What really should be consuming us at the core, what we're, what we're really committed to doing is what the Bible says and then looking to God, who is strong. The God who can take a mighty, roaring, thundering army and turn it to chaff in an instant. So whatever our impossible situation, I think that's the formula Don't go to Damascus. Don't trust your idols. Don't turn to your strong cities. I say it as much to myself as I do to you. Now perhaps you say, hey, is an oracle concerning Damascus? What makes you so certain you're accurately applying it so broadly to us today? The last thing I want to be accused of is sloppy exegesis. It's actually the text that compelled me in this direction in terms of how I'm preaching it. Because it is the move that Isaiah makes. We've already seen how the Damascus oracle is different than the others before and after it. I've already mentioned how Damascus is only discussed in verses 1 to 3 out of all 21 verses. We've seen how verses 7 to 11 apply the message of Damascus But did you notice in verses 7 to 11, there's a certain ambiguity about who it's talking about. And scholars debate this. Is it about the remnant of Ephraim after they've been decimated by Assyria? Is it about Judah after watching what happened to Ephraim? Is it about Damascus 
Or is it about kind of more generically any who Isaiah is preaching to, which is what I think is happening there? Because though there are certain hints of historical setting, most of what's going on is, is Isaiah taking the Damascus scenario and then preaching it to all of us. It's not for one particular people. For, for example, he doesn't say Israel in verse 7. You see that generic word he uses, man, which is the same word for Adam. It's like all who are from Adam, turn to your maker. But if all that work that I've already showed doesn't convince you, chapter 18 should be the clincher. Because chapter 18 takes up the land of Cush. But Cush doesn't get its own oracle. Poor Cush. Why doesn't it get its own oracle? It's a good question in and of itself. But if you're going, if you're going to subsume Cush into another nation's oracle, you don't put it with Damascus of chapter 17, you put it with Egypt of chapter 19. Because Cush refers to the region historically referred to as Ethiopia. It's kind of the outer reaches of Egypt. In fact, around this time, the pharaoh leading the Egyptian empire was a Cushite. In the mind of that day, Egypt and Cush would go together like Newfoundland and Labrador. Chapter 20 makes that clear for us who don't know about the ancient Near Eastern world. So why is Cush mentioned here under the Damascus oracle? It's because the preaching prophet is driving home his point. Perhaps we could say in chapter 17, he's going all Damascus on Ephraim. But in chapter 18, he's making clear that the principle applies further. Because even after Ephraim and Damascus do fall, Judah would remain. And like all the nations that sit there trembling in the path of the mighty Assyrians, Judah's hope would rest on Egypt and their Cushite leader. Indeed, the Cushites, as 18.2 makes clear, were sending out emissaries all over. Implied encouraging people to, con to do what they could to slow down the Assyrian war machine. Egypt and Cush were the new Damascus. Look at chapter 20, verse 5. Let's flip the page there. Now he's predicted the demise of Egypt and Cush. And verse 5 says... Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and Egypt their boast. A man-made solution, scheming, now it's Cush. Long after Damascus is crushed, long after Damascus is now just an Assyrian vassal, the sermon's implication still needs to be heard. The echo of Damascus still needs to ring in their ears. Will Judah trust Cush? Will we trust our man-made solutions? 
instead of Yahweh himself. So Isaiah tells them, send a messenger to Cush with these words, verses three to six, all you inhabitants of the world and you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet's blown, hear. For thus Yahweh said to me, I'll quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. But before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, in other words, the worst time. It's already, it's ready for harvest, but the harvest hasn't happened yet. He comes and cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all then be left to the birds, the prey of the mountain, and to the beasts of the earth. All the birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. What's that signal that's supposed to be raised? It's one of those Isaianic clues that we've talked about. We already saw this word signal in chapter 5, verse 26, and chapter 13, verse 2. It'll be used a couple of more times, but just one more turn of your pages to chapter 11 so you can see what this signal is. Chapter 11, verses 10 and 12. Verse 10 in that day, the root of Jesse, that was another Isaiahic clue that we'd seen before that's pointing to Jesus. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and the resting place, his resting place, shall be glorious. In verse 12, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So when we hear this word signal in our chapter, it's an Isianic clue pointing to the ultimate coming Messiah. You see, our oracle is not simply about Damascus, ultimately. It's not even simply about Judah and Cush, ultimately. It's for all peoples, all nations, Will we see God's victory flag go up, his signal, his Messiah, and trust him? Or will we keep fighting our own battles, our own lame little way? Verse 4 says, God is silently observing all this. He's going to one day come forward and sweep away the multitudes, verses 5 and 6. And then how does verse 7 end? In that day, even the Cushites, the strong, tall people, the ones we're putting our hope in, even they will be worshiping at the feet of Yahweh. That's how the Damascus oracle ends. Chapter 17, Ephraim trusts Damascus, and they both end up ruined. Chapter 18, Judah would be tempted to trust Cush, but instead tells Cush to look to the Messiah, and both end up worshiping Yahweh in Zion. If that's what Cush is going to end up doing, how much more should we? If the flea ends up serving the lion, why should we be chasing the flea? 
What's your impossible situation? God is our stronghold. He's our maker. Behold the Holy One of Israel. I'm not saying no parents should read a book on parenting or consult experts. But we should first be looking to the Word and letting its principles drive our parenting. This isn't a parenting sermon. I'm using this as one illustration. I don't know what your impossible situation is. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to help you apply that. But the scripture's teaching on parenting is straightforward. Don't neglect consistent discipline. Parent with tenderness that doesn't exasperate. And do that administering it as a fellow sinner who wants to tell our child about how Jesus has rescued us. You do that and then you pray and you pray and you pray and trusting your child and his future to God, remove the weight from your shoulders, place it on God's, stop trusting yourself and your man-made widgets for fixing children. Remember Damascus, man-made efforts often end in ruin. And then wait and hope. It's on God's shoulders. I don't know how it's going to go. But I trust him. I'll just do what he tells me to. Pray to him desperately. And wait and hope. So we could do the same thing with the trauma or the relational strain. Obey scriptures. Trust God. Pray much. Wait. The bottom line is, behold the Holy One of Israel. We have a far, far bigger God than most of us realize. So let's stop turning to Damascus and instead behold the Holy One of Israel who is the Lord of all. Let's pray. God, thank you for allowing the prophet to go all Damascus on us and I pray that you would use your word to pry our fingers off of our cherished idols to cause us to, to run away from man-made attempts and instead put our hope in your Christ, trust you, and look to you. In Christ's name, amen.